As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My heart's breaking for you Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of With Without, a song by Rachel Maxan and Fickle Hellcat. The band from Cincinnati is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you hear the rest of that song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. So, I was watching an old episode of a TV series called Scariest Places on Earth. Ever here? No. How old is this TV show? Uh, you know, it was back in the early 2000s. It's okay. not on TV anymore, but it used to be hosted by Linda Blair. You know, the uh, exorcist, uh, head-spinning yeah. girl. Right. Yeah. And the show did an episode on Athens, Ohio, noting that some kind of British ghost society had once named Athens the 13th most haunted location in the world. Oh. In the world. I love those British people. Athens, Ohio. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, we need to figure this one out. Well, while apparently there is more than one haunted site in Athens, the most popular and well-known, of course, is a formal mental institution. And no wonder, this old building is a perfect ghost habitat. More than a century of history, beautiful architecture with just the right touch of decay, and three cemeteries filled with people who were tormented in the mind and tortured in the body, if you understand the kinds of barbaric treatments that mental patients used to undergo. But the thing here that turns the creep factor up to 11 is on the top floor of the main building. 
the shape of a human form in the concrete floor where a missing patient lay decomposing for more than a month before she was discovered. Yeah. But I'll tell you more about that in a little bit first. Let me tell you about the asylum. Today, the property is known as the Ridges. It's part of Ohio University and houses the Kennedy Museum of Art, an auditorium, and various classrooms and offices. But for more than 100 years before that, it was a hospital with various names, the original being the Athens Lunatic Asylum. Gotta love a building that's got lunatic in the name. Do you think? Yeah. The hospital opened in 1874, about a decade after the Civil War had ended, and that may have been one motivation for it. A lot of veterans were experiencing what we know today as post-traumatic stress disorder. Back then, it was really just considered a form of insanity. A couple of farmers in southeast Ohio sold the original 141 acres to the state for the institution, and it took eight years to finish construction. It appears there was every intention for it to be a place of peace, hope, and recovery. It was one of the country's first Victorian-style mental institutions, rather luxurious and situated on a hill south of the Hocking River. It featured ponds, fountains, and beautiful grounds suitable for picnics and outdoor activities, and it welcomed all ages, from those aging Civil War vets to young children. The staff here encouraged holistic healing for all through activities like gardening and counseling. For many years, the hospital even had livestock, farm fields, an orchard, greenhouse, and a dairy. But over the years, it seems like greed took over. The hospital sought to make more and more money by taking way more patients than they were supposed to. In addition to taking in the folks admitted by court order, the hospital accepted people whose families found them to be, well, troublesome. Hmm. You got older parents whose faculties are starting to slip, a rebellious teen at home you can't control, maybe a wife whose husband thought she was suffering from hysteria. Send them to the asylum. As a matter of fact, the first patient of the new institution was a 12-year-old girl with epilepsy. People thought she had been possessed by a demon. So, as the story goes, the asylum became overcrowded. By the 1950s, the hospital had grown to 1,000 acres with 78 buildings treating 1,800 people. That was three times the number of patients that it had been built to accommodate. And somewhere along the way, the hospital lost sight of its original purpose. No longer a peaceful retreat focused on counseling and outdoor therapies, those holistic treatments gave way to methods that today we know to be barbaric and cruel. It's amazing the how long you know this went on. I think it was 1972 when Geraldo did his report on Westbrook, the and where everybody saw the barbaric treatment of uh, you know asylum patients. That is recent as the 1970s. 1970s. So from yeah. that to about 1972, I mean, yeah. what was? What was going on? Oh, oh they had oh, electroshock, ice water baths, they used restraints, psychotropic drugs, and something Athens Lunatic Asylum became very well known for, lobotomies. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
All those wonderful outdoor activities and farm-type responsibilities that were once used as therapy and a way to help patients feel useful, those things became necessary for making money. Patients were free labor. Caring for livestock or tending to produce gardens was no longer therapy for patients. It was their job. And as newer treatment methods relied more and more on drugging patients, patients were finding it harder to do those jobs. I don't know if the staff was cruel, but the rumors are that staff-patient relationships changed dramatically when residents started being treated more like indentured servants than patients. Well, in the 1980s, a land swap between the Department of Mental Health and Ohio University turned the hospital property over to the school, and university archivists work to preserve the records that told the history of the facility. Steve, this is rather interesting. It shows how far we've come in how we diagnose and treat mental illnesses. According to the hospital's first annual report in 1876, the leading cause of insanity among its male patients was masturbation. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. They had 81 (laughs) men and one woman. Apparently women did masturbate as often. They had 81 men and one woman suffering from this. The second most common diagnosis was something called intemperance and dissipation. I had no idea what that meant, but I looked it up, and the closest I can come is excessive debauchery, which might be another form of masturbation. Probably. There were 56 men and one woman diagnosed this way. Now, among the hospital's female patients, the leading causes for losing one's mind was postpartum depression, menopause, and something called menstrual derangements. Oh, jeez. You know, that sounds to me like, you know, honey, you're on the rag and being mean to me, I'm taking you to the asylum. This is an excuse for men to get rid of it. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, you know, epilepsy was considered related to insanity, and then people were admitted for other reasons, ranging from alcohol addiction to tuberculosis, which doesn't have anything to do with mental problems, right. as far as I'm aware. Well, and in 1977, the Athens Asylum, they were in the news for a brand new diagnosis. The facility was treating Billy Milligan. Now, you probably haven't heard this name, but Billy Milligan has his own Wikipedia page. Mm. That's because Billy went to trial for several felonies, including the rape of three women on the campus of Ohio State University. And his attorneys successfully argued that he suffered from multiple personality disorder. Milligan pleaded insanity, claiming two of his alternate personalities had committed the crimes without him being aware of it. And so Milligan became the first person ever diagnosed with multiple personality disorder to raise such a defense and the first person acquitted of a major crime for this reason. So he was actually found not guilty or acquitted for... He was acquitted and hospitalized. And he spent a decade in hospitals, including the Athens Asylum, where doctors tallied up 24 different personalities. Did they give him a lobotomy? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. But he was released after about a decade, and he ended up dying of cancer at a nursing home in Columbus just in 2014. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So I mentioned Ohio University took over the facility in the 80s, but a small portion of the hospital continued to operate until 1993 when the last patient was discharged. But some folks argue that former patients are still there. University students have reported seeing strange figures standing in empty wings and disembodied screams echoing through the halls. They've talked of squeaking gurneys, strange lights, and spirits of patients who remain shackled in the basement. If there are ghosts there, here's one that has good reason to be. On December 1, 1978, a 54-year-old patient named Margaret Schilling disappeared. One story says she was playing hide-and-seek with the nurses and that the nurses got distracted with other responsibilities and forgot about her, and she stayed hidden. However it happened, the hospital realized they'd lost her and started searching for her, but nobody bothered to check a locked and long-abandoned ward that was once used for patients with infectious illnesses. Because 42 days later, on January 12, 1979, a maintenance worker found Margaret's body. An autopsy determined she died of heart failure. Here's the thing. Margaret was naked when they found her. Her clothes were neatly folded next to her body. And as she decomposed on the concrete, bodily fluids seeped into the floor and stained it. It can't be cleaned. The stain is still there, and there are images of it all over the Internet. I did find a video report of a group of OU chemistry students who tested the stain. The stain is rather dramatically white against the gray background of the cement, and the student investigators found the white areas of the stain tested positive for cleaners. So it may be that it's the cleaning solutions that is making the human form stand out so dramatically. But their tests also did find traces of human tissue. So Margaret is still there, both physically and, according to some, spiritually. Some have reported seeing a ghostly figure staring down from the third-floor arched windows of the red brick building. And if Margaret still haunts the place she called home, she might not be the only one. Nearly 2,000 people who were admitted to the asylum never left. They are buried in three cemeteries on the property. That's a lot of people, but, you know, a lot of the folks that were admitted there were either homeless or didn't have family interested in collecting their remains. So they were buried like paupers in graves with nothing more than numbered stones. The state did start adding names to the markers in 1943, but the majority of people who would be buried there were already in the ground. I found that they do offer walking tours of the outside grounds of the old asylum, pretty regularly on Sundays. The tour is guided by a former employee named George Eberts. It does not appear the tour includes a look at that third floor stain, though. Anyway, if you're interested, visit AthensHistory.org, and you'll find all the details on that. And Steve, tonight we have an armchair detective who can tell us more about that because she has explored that uh, place extensively in her life. Oh, interesting. Well, let's bring her on. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, joining us tonight is Ashley Payton from Upper Sandusky. Hi, Ashley. Hi, how are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I am, like you mentioned, from Upper Sandusky, Ohio. I was actually a professional harpist for several years. I played up in Michigan. Uh, People know the Grand Hotel. That's where I was resident harpist for a few years. That's awesome. Yeah. The bad part of being a harpist, though, is you develop carpal tunnel and tendinitis. So I needed to find a different career path. And that's when I became a director of our local historical society for several years and also worked with Wood County Historical Society up in Bowling Green for a while. But I've always loved history, and my main emphasis was always making history come alive. You can only read about it on a page so much before it becomes stagnant. So my point was always to try to put a face to these stories. Oh, this is a good episode for you because there is a lot of history involved here, a century of it. Hey, tell tell us about the ridges because you kind of grew up... Seeing the grounds, right? Yes. Um, My dad was finishing up some of his undergraduate work and his master's at Ohio University. And my mom was a nurse at the hospital. And growing up, my mom was working a lot of different shifts and things of that nature. And when my dad was off from his classes, he would take me to the ridges to take walks, I guess. Um, They have a lot of paths and walkways through there. And so that was kind of our go-to place. The problem was is that the asylum was still in operation at that time, so it wasn't uncommon to see some of the individuals walking around, to see them looking out the windows. It was not a big deal as a kid, but now as an adult, it's super kind of creepy. You look (laughs) back and it's like you feel differently about it. Did your dad ever tell you stories on those walks, or was it just like for just, you know, fresh air? Uh, He would tell stories mainly about... We're big into folklore. I grew up being told a lot of folklore stories. So he would spin tales about the different residents that were there, um, ghost stories that supposedly had happened. He would tell me to look through a window and see if I would see the curtains moving. Because by this point, a lot of the hospital had been shut off. And if you've seen photos of the ridges, it's a massive, massive building. And at that point, they were only using a small portion, but they still had the tattered curtains in the windows. 
And I remember we would walk by and see these abandoned parts and look, and we would see what would seem like curtains moving or faces quickly moving behind the windows. Are there any stories that stick out in your mind that your dad used to tell you? I think a lot of it for us is we were down there in the 80s, and that was kind of the height of the satanic panic going on across the country. Oh, yeah. So a lot of the stuff that we were told evolved around a cult and how the cemeteries were shaped like a pentagram. If you would take a map of Athens and look at the main cemeteries and lay a pentagram over it, each point would go to a different cemetery. So a lot of it was the good-natured folklore, but at the same time, there was that undertone of kind of a fear or not knowing because supposedly all this other stuff was going on at night, whether it was witchcraft or occult meetings. You never really knew, but there was enough fear there that a lot of the stories were you don't come up here at night, you don't talk to people that you don't know. And some of that is because it was an institution, but also with that fear of the satanic panic, you can never be too careful. Now, they still do tours there. Have you ever done a tour as an adult? No, I have not. We go down there quite a bit. I still enjoy walking around the property. It's sad to see that they've taken down like the old tuberculosis ward and some of the other historic structures as a student of history. They must have been beautiful (laughs) buildings, huh? Oh, it's gorgeous. But the tours, from what I understand, are more (laughs) factual-based. And I want to know, why did this happen? What is more behind this? So we've never done one of the tours yet because I don't want to have to go with other people. (laughs) I want to go by ourselves. Now, did you ever get to see the stain no, I <laughs> really. Wow, I know. Did the you know it existed? I mean, when you were young, did your parents ever mention it to you? My mom would mention things because at that point, the hospital was still sending patients over to the ridges. My mom would tell stories. She'd come home and say, "Oh, yeah, we sent another one across the river." So it was always we sent one across the river when they were wanting to transfer somebody from the regular hospital to the ridges. So they would we'd hear stories about the stain and hear some of the folklore around it, but I didn't really understand it until I was an adult working up at Wood County of all places. I think what really creeps me out with the stain and with the whole Margaret story was that what's heartbreaking to me is that she was likely deaf and known to have a speech impediment. And I know a lot of people were saying that she intentionally was hiding, intentionally running from the staff or things of that nature. Sometimes it makes me wonder if she did want to be found, but she couldn't hear them yelling for her. If she had, um, they diagnosed her as mute. She was just very soft-spoken. If she was yelling for help and they couldn't find her, I that to me is just gut-wrenching that this person may have gone missing and wanted help, but wasn't able to reach out to get that or wasn't able to hear people searching for her. I I did not know. Yeah, I didn't know that she had those disabilities. Oh, that makes it all the more heartbreaking. And what's eerie is the newspapers down in Athens that are on microfilm, the month of December is gone when she went missing. So there's no microfilm. It starts back up in January. Was that intentional? It makes you wonder. You work a lot with 
libraries and microfilm and of all months to be missing, the time when she came missing in a state-run hospital is gone. And it was a state-run agency. So the State Highway Patrol should have been doing an investigation, should have done the autopsy. And none of that was ever released or disclosed or even a report can't be found. And since they found her on the premises in the building, it's it's unforgivable that they couldn't find her. Yeah. I mean, if you're That's searching for her, story. you search every room. I don't care if the door was locked. How do you let somebody go one and a half months and not have checked every room in that building? Exactly. And this, I mean, this is 78. So this is not in the 1930s or 1940s. Right. Your diligence should have been put in place by this point to have found her. Yeah, we definitely expect more of, I don't know why, we expect more of modern day people. We should, yeah. no, I mean, I, I would think 100 years ago they should have been that diligent. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty modern mystery. You know, when it comes to ghosts, uh, mental asylums are such a natural place to look. I think of the, the concentration of pain and confusion and terror that was going on in that one place through all of the various kind of bizarre treatments they used to have, the lobotomies and the, the ice baths and the restraints in the basement. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, if there's a place that's going to be haunted, I think it's going to be an insane asylum. I agree. You have all this energy in such a small area, all people that are angry that they're there, that they don't understand why they're there. People that truly do have mental illnesses that aren't getting the concepts of what is exactly going on. And then to have that life just snuffed out, that energy has to go somewhere. Whether it stays around that building, it would have to. Where else is it going to go after being contained in such a way? Hey, did you ever see um, the scariest places on earth episode about Athens? Yes. (laughs) They made it sound like that Dr. Lobotomy would just like come in and hammer this nail into, you know, 50 heads and move on the next day. Like, wow, was it that prolific a treatment? Yes, it is crazy. When I was researching this, because I had grown up with folklore, and there's a big difference between folklore and fact. And sometimes the fact is scarier than the folklore. So I started pulling like medical documents, whatever I could find to get facts on the lobotomies and things going on there. And um, Dr. Freeman was doing this because the original lobotomy he felt took too much time. He didn't like that it was time consuming, had to be in an ER. So he wanted a more streamlined way to do this without an anesthetic drug. (sighs) So his concept was to use electroconvulsive therapy first as a sedative and then go forward with the lobotomy. So you're, they were electrocuting these people and then performing the lobotomy. And they did this because every hospital at that time had the electrocurrent therapy available. So it was a way to do it quick and get them out. But they advertised in the newspaper $25 per patient for his services. And so all these people would come and he would just pump out all these different lobotomies throughout the day, oh making God. a pretty quick price tag there. Wow. And the one nurse, this to me, it gave me borderline nightmares last night. There was a nurse working with him on these lobotomies, and she said it sounded like cloth tearing as they were going through doing the lobotomies. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Oh my gosh. You know, and looking back at some of the way these this story was framed, and I don't know, you know, if it's a hundred percent accurate, but they made it sound like back in the day you could commit a relative without the court being involved. Yes. That you could just go and say, you know, my wife's acting up. I think it's her period. <laughs> Would you take her? And yes. I mean, do you think that was true? Absolutely. My own aunt was institutionalized by her husband. It was actually my great aunt. He was having an affair and wanted his wife out of the picture. And so he took my aunt and had her institutionalized. And there was nothing that could be done to get her out. And it's just crazy. And this What decade would that have been? I believe the 60s or so. Oh, uh, so that, that recent. Yeah. He filled out the papers came up with reasoning on why she needed to be institutionalized and dropped her off, and that was it. What became of her? Do you know? Well, she was released, and I mean, I had a good relationship with her. There was nothing ever wrong with her. She never had any real mental health issues or anything of that nature. He just wanted her out of the picture. There was reasons they were institutionalized because of issues at home. Like one woman was sent there because she was on her seventh child, the husband was abusive, so it was a humane option. But at the same time, there was another individual who was a coal miner, and he was trying to um, create like a UAW for the Hawking River Valley Coal Mining Association. He wanted a labor union. Okay. He started making a fuss about this, so they took him to the court and deemed him as insane because of his nature family find it. His nature of insanity was his desire to organize labor. Oh, no way. So they stuck him in Athens, in the ridges, because he wanted equal rights for those that were doing coal mining. His talk is constantly in regard to the Knights of Labor. He imagine it, imagines it is his special business to organize said society. Overstudy about labor organizations is the cause of his insanity. And that's directly from their records. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh, you brought a whole new level of understanding to this. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to know, like, just why they did some of this treatments and thoughts. And, like, the Thorazine was deemed a miracle drug. But what was crazy about that to me is that it only lasted a few hours before you'd start having issues again, how meds typically work. So in between bouts of the Thorazine, they would use electroshots and cooling packs and different treatments and then medicate them again 
until they were basically zombies walking around. And the one report I saw, I read said that a lot of the times when these individuals were released into mainstream society or went into nursing homes once the ridges closed down, a lot of the CAT scans came back from those that had lobotomies performed, and it looked like they had suffered strokes. And a lot of the doctors thought they were getting in stroke patients, and here it was all these lobotomy patients because they never really recovered a lot of their quote-unquote senses from having the lobotomies performed. Right. Had you ever heard about Billy Milligan being there? So I never heard about Milligan until I actually started researching this. I felt kind of deprived, never being told about him before. (laughs) I know. It sounds like he was a pretty big deal. I mean, being the very first person to use multiple personality disorder as a defense and be, you know, and get off because of it. Yeah. And then to have, to supposedly have found 10 more personalities while he was at Athens, I wonder how much of it was true versus using that as an excuse to try to get out of his trial. I, I've not read enough on him to really give an opinion one way or the other, but it definitely makes you kind of question the motives for everything that he had done to those women. It's definitely one of those situations where unless you experience something or you have first-hand knowledge of it, you know, and you're there, it's really hard to understand. It's like, Mm -hmm. really? You can have, you know, 28 other people living in your brain? Yeah. It's just hard to comprehend. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying unless you're there or part of it, it's really hard to understand. Ashley, let's talk about graves. Sounds good. <laughs> I've always been told that when people were admitted into these asylums, poor farms or anything of that nature, um, a lot of times the families wanted to just forget them. They wanted to send them off and forget them. They didn't want to be connected with them out in the community. So my understanding and my research had showed me that a lot of the times they were given numbers. So when somebody did pass away, there was no connection to the community you didn't know that your mother was buried over at the ridges because that would be what would be deemed as embarrassing. So they used numbers instead of the names on a lot of these graves, so it couldn't be connected back. I, I knew that there were numbers on the graves. I had no idea that's why. Whether or not that's true, I'm not sure. That's what I personally believe, and based on what I've read, it makes sense. Yeah. Because you're talking about like the 1900s, early 1900s, very society driven you want your perfect appearance you don't want to know that your dad was institutionalized right that could tarnish your whole family so you could put them with a number or no number and it would be as if they never even existed and what's sad is a lot of these records are gone um i don't know many counties that have the logs of names and it's the same thing for athens they've lost a lot of those logs correlating this number to this individual. Well, Ashley, thank you so much. I oh, anytime. You've completely changed this story for us. This is a, this was great information. Hopefully not in a bad way. I'm sorry. I tried to find a ton of creepy stories, but sometimes the truth is almost creepier than the ghost story. The truth is so much better. Whenever I do these location ones, I usually focus on the truth because that's what I can sink my teeth into, ghosts and that kind of stuff. It's 
you know, it, it, you, maybe you believe, maybe you don't, but everybody can believe the truth. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Oh, and before we go on, we have a new fan to welcome to our Patreon family, Paula. Thank you, Jane. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jane. Welcome aboard. Paula and I don't get paid for doing this podcast, but we truly appreciate Ohio mystery fans like Jane who help pay for our fees and expenses. And if you want to help, you'll find a link to our Patreon account at the top of our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Rachel Maxan is the front woman for Fickle Hellcat, which is made up of Mike Wiley and Paul Swaybeck. Their vintage indie rock sound will be featured on a brand new album coming out October 1. Rachel writes all of the songs just as she wrote With Without, which is the song we're featuring tonight. The lyrics of this one should ring familiar to most of us. It's about the excitement and instability of new love. And who doesn't understand that? So, if you want to keep up with the band, look for them on Facebook or Instagram, or check out their performance schedule on their website, FickleHellcat.com. I see they're going to be at Urban Artifact in Cincinnati on September 14 and September 27, Woodland Tavern on October 4. That's my birthday, Steve. Oh, October 4 is your birthday? Okay. That's right. Oh, and on October 5, they'll be at Casa Nueva Restaurant in Athens, which was the location of tonight's episode. Oh. And they'll be sharing a stage with another one of our Ohio Mysteries featured bands, Larry Elefante. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, at the start of the podcast, we played a clip of With Without. So here's the rest of that song. Enjoy. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 